0: Welcome back to another episode of It Is What It Is. I
1: am your host, Cody Kelly. Look, connect with me. I appreciate my audience. I appreciate you all out there who are listening. But if you want to keep seeing amazing content, you got to do two things. You got to follow me on Instagram at CVMK33, and you got to connect with me on YouTube as soon as the link below pops up. At CV Space K, we're all great content and Seed, Heard, and Felt. I have an amazing author, amazing man. He's the former chaplain of the Chicago Bulls. He has a new book out, The Bible, Basketball, and the Bulls. Go cop that. We are going to get into the inspiration behind the book. We're going to discuss the content of the book. And we're going to get into some, um, I guess, controversial characters that have kind of I guess evolved in, in recent, uh, (laughs) days with a few, uh, comments, uh, from, um, hall of famers. Uh, so with that being said, I would welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you so much, uh, for taking the time to be on this, but like anything, I always start off with every time I interview an
0: author, what inspired you to write the book? Well, that's an interesting story because once I retired, I had really, had, I don't want to say washed my hands of everything, but uh, people kept asking me, I would put these little quirks and these little stories and these little these pictures up on my Facebook page. And people kept saying, you know, you should write a book about it. You should write a book about it. And they, they kept repeating. Matter of fact, one fellow even said the Lord told me, he told mm-hmm. him to tell me that I should write a book about it. And so I began to seriously think about it. I said, well, I said, I don't know how good my memory is. Again, you're talking about 37 years but I began to start writing. And once I did, a lot of things began to come back. I don't want to say the book wrote itself, although that, that argument could be made, because right. as fast as I thought about stuff, I began to remember stuff and I began to remember some of the most outstanding portions in that time. There's particularly our first championship year when I had a chance to lead the team in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, on national TV in the locker room after our first uh, victory. So I began to write. And like I said, I figured when I would write it, it would maybe get maybe 60, 70 pages, maybe 100 at the most. Well, the book wound up being 184 pages. And even now after it's finished and published and printed and out there, I'm still remembering stories that I kind of wish that i put in there, but I just couldn't remember them uh, right. until afterwards. Uh, but the inspiration came from people telling me that I should do it. Uh, one particular lady said, somebody wants to hear your story. And I didn't really think I really, anybody was interested in hearing it. you know. But sure enough, it appears the response to the book has been positive. And I guess there are people that want to know the insight of what it was like ministering to the Chicago Bulls for those 37 years.
1: Perfect, perfect. Look, I've had a chance to get into it. You you covered your journey of how you became a chaplain. I know I covered this last time because you know I, I stated in, in our first connection, I said, you can't just go to LinkedIn and apply uh, for the chaplaincy, right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, You talked about how you were invited uh, and basically kind of how God opened up a door. And then you just found yourself. um, Your book covers how you got there. It covers filling in. It covers the revival that you preached, the sermon you preached at the AME Church. But I wonder, was it like a after you got introduced after you know you met and and you did the the prayer um uh with with the players and then you know this kind of opportunity came about was it a sit down conversation you had to have with management i mean like how how does
0: how does chaplaincy and sports like how do those worlds connect well the Head Chaplin, the one who I started with, my mentor, Reverend Henry Souls, he did all of that. The, the procedure at that particular time was we went, we were covered, our, I guess our, our covering was the media. And what we would do, what he would do, and then what I would do as well, uh, at the beginning of the season, I think we had to submit a letter uh, requesting that we do, uh, just like any uh, sports person did. If a sports person, if a media wanted to cover the Bulls that year, they had to submit a letter who they were with uh, and request credentials. Uh, we had to do the same thing. First couple of years, Henry did it. Then eventually I started doing it. But after a while, I became such a fixture there until I never had to do it again. I think I probably did it maybe my first five years. Uh, but afterwards, I became a, a a fixture there. Everybody knew me, particularly the, the uh, PR man, Tim Hallam, who who headed the, the PR. And so I never had to do that or go that route again. Even when I brought my assistant on, Paul, uh, the late Paul Riley, who just recently passed, uh, it was just my recommendation. And so credentials were issued that way. In fact, every year when I would go down from that point on, when I would go down to the first uh, exhibition game, uh, I would just go to the, uh, uh, the the press gate and they would have the credential for me. And I would just simply take it, wore it around my neck for the rest of the season. But again, uh, the start of it, which was before my time when Henry Souls, among others, others, were there, petitioned the league with the backing of players, players like Bobby Jones, players like Dr. J., what the Chicago Bulls, the late Dwight Jones, played with those artists, Gilmore. These men were all in favor of having this program in the NBA. And so a few of the ministers, again, before my time, in conjunction with the players, uh, petitioned the league, and this is how we were allowed to get started. That makes sense. So, my, my question is so, you know,
1: you, you guys build this kind of union right um that is is really catering to the the needs the spiritual needs of the players uh but you know the game got bigger you know uh to the point now you know like everybody you know is is unionized everybody is is represented with a with an agent you know you you can't walk into uh, that billion dollar industry, right, without going through the proper channels, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. what has gotten better about chaplaincy, and then what hasn't gotten better, or what has gotten worse, I, I should say?
0: Well, uh, I, I think uh, again, the main thing, the mainstay of the chaplaincy is the interest of the players. Uh, and if the players lose interest, then I, I think it, it pretty pretty much would. Make us history, which, which again, I so far has not happened. Uh, there are strong Christians in the league. Uh, when I was there, uh, we had a guy like Michael Red, who played with the Milwaukee Bucks. Right, yeah. Michael Red was a strong Christian, a strong brother. In fact, he would always request that I give him uh CDs of my preaching. He would uh, uh listen to me on while he was on the road, and when he come back to town, he say, Man, I really enjoyed that. Uh, Kevin Ollie played a short time with us here in Chicago, yeah. strong, yeah. devout Christian. Uh, uh, Irvin Johnson, not Magic Johnson, but Irvin Johnson played with Milwaukee and Minnesota. He was responsible for uh. Keeping the players active, and so what has to happen is once we uh, start a season, and I was always make my point to be there for maybe the first exhibition or two, even if we didn't hold a chapel session, uh, to introduce myself to the players and to encourage them, because the life the lifeblood of this ministry is the, particip- the participation, excuse me, of the players, and so I would encourage that. Uh, one of the things we also did, uh, and I learned this from from Henry Souls, uh, to get one player. To be the chapel leader. Now, mind you, I remember mm. my mindset when I first came there, I figured the chapel leader had to be saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and that wasn't always the case. A lot of them were not that <laughs> were not that into it like they should have. But they were committed Christians, they were they were faithful attendees of the chapel. And so uh using that to our advantage encouraged the other players. Now, that fellow when I first came was David Greenwood. Uh David Greenwood, in fact, David Greenwood would actually, when I would make these little gospel tracks and give to him, he would take them to the locker room and put them in each player's locker. So if they didn't attend chapel, they still got a a, uh, a track of what we we ministered about that night. Uh, now, sometime the the, the the strength of the chapels, and I think I probably dealt with a little bit of the drawback that could happen, but the strength of the chapels was being faithful. And I remember even saying to the younger guys that came along as we, in, in the meeting, one of our last meetings, last time I was met with them, uh, was to encourage them to always be there. Let the p- players know that you're there, even if your participation in a particular year is low. Uh, in my 37 years, there were some years when I had full participation from practically all of the team to the time where it maybe down to one or two that I could depend upon. Um, and so my uh, admonishment to them was to always be there and to be faithful even in uh, lean years. You know, sometimes your, your your chapel players get traded away. I mean, I've had that happen where guys that were more faithful to my chapel, they suddenly get traded away, like Kevin Ollie in that case, you know. Uh, uh, who's the other fella? Uh, a True Holiday, not True Holiday, uh, his brother. I can't remember his name right there. But oh, he was, that's right. That was yeah. my best Yeah. And he got traded. And so there went one of my most faithful attendees. Uh, but again, the, the main thing that I discovered is being consistent, being there, you know. And, and sometimes you're called upon because management knows you're there for things other than chaplain itself. I don't know if you got to the part where I had to specifically minister to Tyson Chandler. When I was called by management, John Paxton sent word, find the chaplain. Uh, Paxton had gone through a situation where a couple of his friends were killed that night. Um, not that he was there, but he got word that they were killed. Uh, in, and I can't remember exactly what it was. And when he came to the game tonight, uh, they could tell that he just wasn't right. So, Patson said, Where's Scott? You know, he knew me by first name, of course. He said, I want to somebody let you talk to the chaplain. Of course, I knew Tyson. He'd been attending my chapels. And the very fact that I was there uh, meant that there was, there was the the opportunity, if you want to call it that, to minister specifically to him in the coach's office uh, because of what he had gone through. And again, I I when that incident happened, I really felt my worth as a chaplain. As I stated in the book because I realized that management understood the importance of my being there and that they needed my services. Well, one of the things that I was reminding them of in chapel uh, is that this moment is a fleeting moment. You know, uh, Henry Souls like to always use the illustration uh, like Jesus. Today they're saying Hosanna and before the week is out, they're saying crucify him. You know, uh, there are cycles uh, and again, there's cycles in life, of course, there's cycles in life, there's cycles in sports, there's cycles in the individual of the player, the individual life of the player, and I always like to keep them grounded to realize you can be up today, but tomorrow you can be down, don't let this go to your head, don't let the, enjoy the, the moment, but always remember, just like this, there's a season uh, of of everything going well, there's there's also a season when things might not be going so well, and the very folk that that cheered you and 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 you know made an icon out of you will now be saying crucify him, get rid of him, trade him. I saw that with John Paxson when he became the general manager. When John when John Paxson became the general manager, the people cheered. They gave him a standing ovation because they remember him, of course, being the hero of the the um, playoffs and the finals. And and people would say, give John the Paxson the job. He knows the team. He knows the structure. He knows this. Well, of course, when this, the, the, the thing started going pretty bad for the team, then they were asking for his head, fire packs, fire guard foreman. He was another guy that they brought on, you know, so those type of cycles, I, I try to keep them aware. And of course, some of the things I realized, some of the things that I say to them at that moment, which is with anybody, some of the things you say to people at the moment, uh, they may not get it right away, but they'll remember it when the cycle begins to change. Uh, and so, one of my hopes in there is, is that guys that uh, may have only been there for a season or two, uh, that I left something with them or gave them something that when they got further down the road, and even when their playing days are over, you know, when your playing days are over, you know, we used to have, we used to have a joke. Uh, a running joke amongst the sports writers that I would sit and talk with sometimes. They talk about uh the people that are no longer in the league. And one guy said, I'm sure people go up to you and say, who did you used to be? You know, because again, that name means nothing now. It may have meant something mm-hmm. back in the day. But of course, with a guy like Michael Jordan and, and the championship years, th- those names last a lot longer, obviously. But uh, a guy who may come into the league uh, and have a hot moment, hot streak, he injures himself, it's all over. And all that glamour and that glory and that glitter is no longer there. And the people will, you know, say, who did you used to be? You know, in other words, you're not who you once one time were. Well, again, these are things that I would remind the guys sometime in ministering to them in the chapel sessions uh, to keep your feet on the ground, to remember who you are, to remember where you came from. And don't think that this is going to last forever. It's a fleeting moment. It's for a season, uh, all of the money, all of the fame, all of the glamour. And then, of course, I would give them the scripture. That said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I would emphasize to them the importance of putting God first and being saved. Uh, That was my very first message that I preached when I did the chapel from St. John. I'm sorry, St. Matthew 633. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added on. So that was a reoccurring thing that I, I did with them throughout and particularly in the losing seasons. It was easy to relate that message in the losing seasons than it was in the winning seasons, but just like there were winning seasons, there came losing seasons as well. So the cycle turns in sports, in life, in the game. What was it like ministering? Well, Jay Williams was very receptive when he first came in. When I first met him, uh, when they came in, uh, I mentioned to him to chapel. He said, yeah, he said, I'd love to come. I love because I always believe in praying even for the game. And so he was one of my faithful attendees. I got to meet his mother and his mother seemed to appreciate very much what we did. Matter of fact, every time his mother saw me, she would hug me, you know, uh, I didn't get to meet his father until the tragedy. And I'll, I'll tell you about that. But, uh, one of the things about uh, uh, Jason Williams and he, he went by the name Jay, because there were other Jason Williams in the league. I think there were two others, Jason Williams. So he just went by Jay Williams, but he always wanted me, uh, before the game to pray with him on the bench before the introductions were made. So I'd always stand close by to the team bench, uh, I'll be sitting at the press table, which is just right next to the team bench. And I would go and I would pray with him right before the game. Uh, sometimes even would get on his knees uh, again, usually a lot of people may not have saw them because again, he was in the midst of the team guy standing around the bench, but he always wanted me to do that. When he had his tragedy, uh, I was the only one that was allowed to go up to visit him because I was talking to some of the players about, it. they said, we didn't even get to go up. They wouldn't even let us go up there and see him. I think management man went up, and when I first went up to see him, he was at, uh, let's see, Masonic Temple, uh, Masonic Hospital or something like that on, on the north side. When I first went up there, his father didn't know who I was and, and asked me. And then his mother saw me and she said, oh, let him in. That's the chaplain. And again, she hugged me again. And I went and I ministered to Jason. He was laying there in some type of traction, it looked like. And he really looked pretty banged up. Uh, I prayed with him. Uh, he wanted me to minister to him and his fiance. And I did. Uh, I came back. I made a second visit to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, as he began to recover, uh, I think I saw him because this happened in the summer. By the time the season started, he was on crutches. Uh, and that was the last time I saw him. But I would ask Chris Duhan, who also played at Duke, who was on the team, how he was doing. And I was sending word to him. And, and and as a result, he lost his lateral movement. So he's never able to play in the NBA again. And it's always a question of, of what if. Uh, what people don't realize is that a lot of those things that happen, uh, that they're in contracts, that the, the team used to cover itself uh, to prevent things like motorcycles, skydiving, mountain climbing, something that could put your life in danger. The team very easily could have forfeited his contract, but they didn't. Uh, nice of them to do that. They bought his contract out, uh, but he's never able to play mm-hmm. in the NBA again. I think the last I heard he was doing uh, um, uh, color analyst on uh, ESPN, I think. Right. Uh, so he still is, is, is part of the game itself. But it was it was a tragic situation, and of course, you always wonder what could have been had not this event taken place. Uh, I don't even know. Again, sometimes guys, you know, again when they're young, they run into a lot of money. They, they have a tendency to, to do foolish things. I don't know if he even knew how to ride a motorcycle, you know. But hey, he could get one and look good. He got it and, and and crashed it and and crushed his pelvis. I think is what happened, and so that was it. It was tragic, but again. Uh, just like I administered, you know, you got it. You're riding high today and tomorrow something could happen and it's all over. And uh, that was a lesson I think that a lot of guys did learn uh, in that as a result of that tragedy. So let's, let's switch gears. Scott has been O.C. lately. I think that's the best way to say it. Scotty
1: has written a book. I hope he's of <laughs> <read> your book. <laughs> and Scottie is is claiming that he didn't need to just do uh, Jackson made a mistake giving Tony to the ball instead of him. Uh, that he was the real leader in the locker room, not Michael. Uh, he even accused in a today interview uh, that Bill Jackson was racist. I don't believe any of that. What Scotty said, right?
0: Yeah. What well, what
1: what happened? Because uh, you saw Scotty when he was Scott when he was Scott right, he had yeah. been drafted in '87, and then you saw the maturation
0: of this personality. What, what happened there? Well, I'm, I pray for Scotty. I think about him periodically because when he first came to the team, he and Horace Grant, were they came to the team together and they were very faithful in my chapels. They were very faithful in attending. Uh, in fact, during that time, during that championship run of the 12 players, I had about 80 guys that were coming on a consistent basis, including Craig Hodges and Cliff Livingston, Scott Williams, uh oh, my BJ Armstrong, I say Scotty, Horace. Uh those guys were always there during my, my chapel sessions. Uh along the way, Scotty stopped coming. He's got slowful. And I remember the championship night before the game, we were in Los Angeles, and I sat down talking. and I said, Pip, I said, you know, you get something great is about to happen to you, man. Don't forget the Lord. I said, Look at the Lord has blessed you. Look at where the Lord has brought you from. You're about to win a championship. You know, and I gave him that straightforward talk. And that night he did come to chapel. Uh, he had to leave to get his ankles taped, you know, to get uh, tape before each right. game. Uh, but he was there for the, for the most part. Uh, but I, I noticed a change in him as he got more successful, as he became more successful. Uh, he began to change. He began to change. Now, he was always friendly to me. Uh, again, he's he's never uh, avoided me. Uh, he's always friendly. Um, but I noticed that change. And I think that what happened was that when Jerry Krause began to recruit Tony Kukoc, um You know, Pip made the statement on on the last dance. Uh, I think it was him and Michael Jordan. I think it was Pip that made the statement that, you know, we're the guys that have won these championships for you, Jerry. We're the guys, and and you're just going to neglect us and go all out and bring this guy to the team that nobody really knows and and push him up into the stars. So I think there was that riff initially. Now, I understand now Pip says him and Tony cook are good friends. Tony was a good guy. In fact, the reality was, I don't think here in America, we actually ever saw Tony Kuko's talent. Uh, because again, he was playing with with guys just as good as he was, but he was an outstanding player in Europe. But I think that, that because Pip, as he stated, uh, one of the, was the leader of the team, uh, that he should have been given the opportunity to, to take the last shot. Uh, now I don't think it was fair to call Phil racist, uh, but again, you have to think the mindset of, of the way Scotty felt about a lot of things because I guess uh, he felt he was cheated of an opportunity, not given the opportunity uh, to be the leader of the team. and it was suddenly abruptly given to Ku Coach, who for the first three years was was not part of that team, you know And so this outsider comes in uh, after we've already established ourselves as a championship team as the best in the world. And then we bring a guy in. And we want to make him the hero. Well, I, I, I'm sure I can understand. Now, I don't say I agree with it, but I can understand Scotty feeling cheated. Uh, I don't think it was the right thing to sit out. Sit out, and you know, because. And I understand what happened was afterwards that, that Bill Cartwright in the locker room uh, gave a very uh, uh, forthright speech and said, "Scotty, you let us down. We're a team." And and Pip cried about it. Uh, I remember the post game press conference. Uh, we were in, in the press room there, and, and Phil uh, addressed it very directly and said so the reason why pip was not on the floor is because he chose not to be out there and then he probably got him walked out phil jackson did so he was miffed about it uh i think if pip had kind of you know in the last dance kind of softened it up and said i regret the move i made people would have forgotten right. me. but instead he said if i had a chance to do it again i'd do the same thing well he doesn't <laughs> appear to be remorseful he doesn't appear to be repentant uh and now in the book he's saying these things know i don't know if he's trying to sell books but i think personally i think it's unfair to say that phil jackson was a racist i just don't think that's fair did you did you suspect earlier that there might have
1: been a rift maybe between him and michael you know because sometimes
0: outside looking in all that type of rift. in fact uh if anything there's more of a a, a rift between horace and, and michael Horace Grant because Horace would stand up to Michael, you understand. And again, I did not any of the practices, but I understand Michael yeah. ran the, the practices and was hard on people. You know, and he would, and he even, he, he admitted, uh, Horace wasn't apt to take all that stuff, but I, I do remember a conversation with Horace one time when he was saying that uh, I'm trying to think who else wanted to fight with Michael. And uh, he said they had to pull him away because even though they had differences, Horace said, even though I, I had differences with Michael, I realized this man is the franchise of the team. So I can, tell him how I feel about it and get in his face and talk and, and woof, you know. He said, but I wasn't going to fight with him and hurt him because I realized this man is the team. And I'm trying to think who the other player was uh, that they said they had to restrain him because they realized, don't, don't fight with Mike. Mike. Now, Mike would haul off and hit somebody else. He punched out Will Perdue. He punched out Steve Kerr, you know. So, I mean, you know, he wasn't one to back down either. But I never saw, from my perspective, any riff, between him or Scottie Pippen. Uh, you know, Pip knew he was good. Uh, he 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 developed. He wasn't that good. When, well, I shouldn't say he wasn't that good. Let me put it this way. When he first came to the team, and I remember it quite well, he had the potential. Uh, and, and what I find with a lot of guys, uh, when they come into the league, depending on where they come, they've got potential to be great players, but if they're in the wrong system or the wrong uh, coaching staff like Kevin Lockery. When Kevin, when I first started, Kevin Lockery was the coach. He did more to destroy guys' careers, looked to me like, than anything else because he had ego like they did. And, and I talk about in the book how the genius of Phil, Phil Jackson was he knew how to uh, relate to each, each player, whereas Kevin Lockery wanted to let everybody know he's the boss and step on their neck if need be. I mean, that was his attitude. So I, uh, between Pip and, and the other guys, I didn't see any riff or any jealousy that I saw. Uh, but I think probably, you know, when the season is over, when, when it's all said and done, uh, when, uh, uh, you know, we look back on it now, him as a player, uh, he probably thinks of things that, that it could have been done differently. And to be honest with you, I look at a lot of things in my situation there that could have been done differently, you know? Uh, so I guess all of us feel that some of us react differently than others. Some of us think differently about it than others. So, you know, that, that's all I have to say about that. I saw no indication of any rip between him and Michael Jordan at all. So my last question, 37 years in childhood, you
1: you've met a lot of great players. You had uh, relationships with these players. You prayed over and administered uh, to them. Uh, you have impacted the NBA. What do you think uh, your legacy is, not just for the Chicago Bulls, uh, but the NBA as a whole, because arguably, and, and this is, you know, uh, as an outsider looking in, but, and I said this when we interviewed, the first I said, football chaplains are known. Like, some of them are like celebs, right? They're like celebrity chaplains.
0: Mm-hmm. Basketball
1: chaplains are not known. You might be the most visible, like, you know, you saw me at the WGN games. People recognize you. They saw you in the docu series. You know, like, um, so you might be the most visible NBA chaplain ever.
0: What do you think your legacy is when you look back? Well, if I could keep it limited to a man of God, uh, I never got in any scandals. I never got in the middle of things. There, there is one incident that I'm kind of <laughs> not very proud of. I talk about it in the book where one of these security guards tried to dress me down in front of my daughter. And I didn't take too kind to of that because I wasn't going to punk out in front of my daughter. So I may be a man of God, but you're not going to come in here. And again, it's, it's in the book. Uh, and so what wound up happening was I got in his face and he got in my face and we went back and forth. Now again, I didn't get profane. I didn't use no profanity. I didn't cuss. But I don't know, buddy, you know, I'm a man and you're not going to dress me down in front of my daughter. That just ain't going to happen. You know, uh, and it blew over uh, again. I right. talked about it in the book, uh, but uh you know, I, I hope that, that, that people will look back and remember me in that field, particularly the ex-players, remember me as as what they would call me. They'll call me rare, you know, uh, even management and, and, and some of the security people that all knew me uh, knew that I was one who lived according to what I preached, that I was not hypocritical, that I was not out hustling the players and counting the players, trying to get money out of folks and, and lying to folk and all that kind of stuff. Uh, because I tried to maintain a holy lifestyle, a godly lifestyle uh, there. Uh, it, you know, whether I was in the locker room, whether I was in the, in the media room, among the medias. In fact, uh, since I've done this book, uh, of course, a couple of the blurbs you have on the back there of the book are from two guys that were with the media. Fred Mitchell with the uh, Chicago Tribune, uh, yeah. Jim O'Donnell with uh, the the, the uh, Suburban Herald. Uh, yeah. These guys knew me and they were nice enough to, to uh, give a blurb. Uh to me and to the book on the uh, on the back of the book, endorsed the book. In fact, I just talked with Jim O'Donnell today. Instantly I misspelled his name McDonald. It's not McDonald, it's O'Donnell. And no, I apologize no. for that, and I'm gonna straighten that out on my next printing. But uh, he said today that he even featured it in one of his columns and plans wow. to do it again as the season starts. So uh there were good relationships that I had there with most of the people. Uh a couple of them maybe not as good as others, but it's only because uh I guess they didn't appreciate what I was doing. Right. Uh, I had no real run-ins with anybody except Jerry Krause. And again, I talk about that in the book. And that soon blew over. You know, he calmed down uh, after our initial encounter. So I hope that the legacy that I left will be that I was a man of God. And, and secondly, that I was a black man who stood tall. Uh, again, I didn't dress with my pants falling down. I didn't come up with a lot of crazy hairstyles. I always tried to dress like a strong leader. Uh, And they could look as particularly since the majority of the young guys in the NBA are black young men. They could look at me as a black man and see that this is how a man carries himself. This is how a Christian man, this is how a Christian black man carries himself. Uh, Strong, uh, firm, uh, you know, not, you know, acting foolish and crazy and chasing all the skirts and all that kind of stuff. Nobody could ever truthfully accuse me of anything like that because I tried to maintain my godly standards and as a man and as a man of God. And as a black man, I want to keep all that uh, visible. And I hope that those are the things that they remember me by.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Look, the book is out. I have a copy. My wife has a copy. He
0: has a copy in his hands. Where can they get the book? You can go to my website, scottbradleyministries.vpweb.com. That's one word. Let me go through that again. Scott Bradley Ministries, plural ministries dot v is in victor p is in paul vpweb.com you can go there or you can simply go straight to my cash app uh, which is dollar sign brad that's a derivation of my name b-r-a-d dollar sign b-r-a-d 2538 or go to my zelle uh, which will take you directly to the bank which is brad 2538 at yahoo.com Again, you do that, the book is $22.50. You can go either one of these ways. Or lastly, you can mail, uh, send a check of money order to my P.O. Box, P.O. Box 8044, Romeoville, Illinois, 60446. Send your check of money order for $22.50, and we will get the book right out to you. And I I would encourage you to get it because I think I got a good story to tell, Uh, a lot of insight, uh, a lot of stories, good, bad, and different. But I think you will be blessed. Y'all, get the book.
1: Zell it. Cash app it. Visit the website. And the cool thing about support, I always say support gets support. And if you want to keep seeing amazing influencers like Reverend Bradley here, you got to do two things, YouTube, CVSpeakStay, and on Instagram at CVMK33. It has been a blast. Until next time, guys. Thanks. Hey, what's up, everybody? You like what you saw? We were entertained. We are informed. If you want to keep seeing amazing content, subscribe at the link below. YouTube, CV space K. You connect where all podcasts are streaming. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor. Connect with me. I want to connect with you. Let's enjoy the ride.